Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God as I continue through the Gospel of John. We'll be finishing chapter 12 this morning. I'm going to back up a couple verses, be uh, preaching from verse 34 on. I'm going to back up to verse 31 just to remind us of the context here. So beginning in verse 31 of John chapter 12, these are the words of God. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus said. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, Not in me, but in him. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing now. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing not only on the reading of this word, but also on the preaching and the hearing and the applying into our hearts and lives. Let us walk in the light and believe in the light of the word which you sent. Confirm our faith, enliven our loyalty, set us on the way in which we should live. Do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I want you to notice how strange the season of Advent and Christmas really is in this world around us because it ties into this passage. Many of us will go to hear the Messiah, and I don't know how many times I've gone to the Messiah and I sit there and I listen to this beautiful music this glorious choirs singing scripture and realizing how many of those people that are up there probably do not know what they're singing about, do not know who they're singing about, or worse, they hate who they're singing about. They love the music, they love their gifts of being able to use instruments or to, or to sing, but they hate the one who created these things. They hate the one that they are performing about. You go into the mall well, maybe not. Who goes into malls these days, right? Or retail stores, even remember them. 
it's just a matter of time until you're, you're on Amazon and they just start playing Christmas music in the background <laughs> while you're shopping. <laughs> but even then, you hear Joy to the World, um, where, where no one believes that he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And yet, he has and he is. And that has been the point of the first 12 chapters of the book of John, of the Gospel of John. These seven signs and now the end of the public ministry of John. Uh, John's Gospel begins in verse 4 of chapter 1 with these words. In him, this word, this word that was with God, that was God, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. John 1, 4 and 5. John begins his gospel with this kind of confidence. We come to John's record of Jesus now, final public appeal to the people of Israel as John lays out his order of the gospel. We come to the end of chapter 12 where Jesus will say his final words in public until the time of his trial and crucifixion. The end of his public ministry seems anticlimactic, though. We'll look at this in this passage. It doesn't seem to have accomplished at all what, what we might have hoped to see accomplished. Almost depressing, almost depressing looking. And the characters, the characters we see um, are, are not lining up with the hope of this light that, is, that cannot be overcome at all. And yet, and yet Jesus' words and these final words in chapter 12 are so full of confidence it's as though Jesus knows he is right where he is supposed to be. Come to the end of his ministry of signs, of teaching, of, of healings, of instruction, and the response that the people have, are giving to him in general. Here is a summary of sorts from verse 35 of his entire message as presented by the Gospel of John. A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. And I want you to hear those words because Jesus is not playing around. You might think, if you believe the other things to be true that are going to be in this passage, the words of Isaiah that, that, that say that God intends to harden hearts, blind eyes, stop ears, you might think that Jesus doesn't mean what he says in verse 35, but oh, he does. The one who is completely sovereign still lays out his message to each and every heart upon this earth and says, a little while longer, a, another Christmas maybe for you, maybe only one more Christmas for you, where you'll hear the songs, Hark the, angel, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and you have a chance to respond. A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Well, let me give you an overview of this passage um, and, and then and take us into some of the themes that I think are, are important. Following Jesus' statement that he would be lifted up from the earth, that was verse 33, the people replied, no, the law taught something different. The law taught that the Messiah would remain forever, verse 34. Jesus doesn't answer that that question. He doesn't answer that complaint. Jesus didn't answer directly, but instead solemnly warns them that the light is with them only a little while longer and that they should believe now. They should believe now in the light before it is too late. That's verses 35 and 36. 
John then tells us that Jesus departed and was hidden from them, verse 36. The rest of the week, he is no longer in the public venue at all. He is only with his disciples in, in, in John's gospel here. Many who had seen the signs did not believe in him. We are told straight up in verse 37. They don't believe. Which, then, John reminds us, is just what Isaiah had prophesied in verses 38 through 40, quoting two passages in Isaiah that we will take a look at. And these were, uh, these were prophesied by Isaiah when he had seen the glory of the Lord, verse 41. There were some among the rulers, we are told, who did secretly believe, fearing, but fearing the Pharisees, they kept their, their belief secret because they loved the praise of men and didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue, which didn't really sound very hopeful for a bunch of followers of Christ. Lastly, John records a final cry of Jesus, and the way this is situated, we've, we're already told that Jesus has departed and is no longer with them, and then, and then we hear about people not believing and the words of Isaiah, and then there's this final cry of Jesus, but it's not placed in a scene. It, it, it's not where he's with just the disciples, it's not where he's still out in public, it's just Jesus cries out. It's as though John... It's as, as though John is, is, is letting these words of Jesus be directed to the readers of the gospel, to the hearers of the gospel, before he moves on to the next scene. And I think those are the way, that's the way that these verses should be read. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father and to see the Father. This was, this was the Father's intentions. This was the Father's direction. And everything Jesus did and said was according to the Father's will verses 44 and 45. Jesus has come into the world as the light so that whoever should believe should not abide in darkness. He is the way out, verse 46. He does not judge those who do not believe for his present mission is to save and not to judge, but his word will judge them in the last day, verses 47, 48. Really, really good news, verses 47 and 48. A lot of application that can be made here. One of the things I just want to take a look at that, and we'll, we'll dive back into the rest of the text, but look at me again with me at 47, 48. Jesus says, and if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. What does he mean? Jesus comes as the judge. He will come as the judge as the final day, and then he says, my word will judge on the final, the last day. Well, one of the applications I think that's very obvious about that is when the, when the gospel is presented, when the words of Christ are read, when the story of Christmas is told, and you don't believe, Jesus doesn't judge you. It's not like you only get one shot at it. I, I don't know for how many of you, you might notice this, with, maybe for yourself, the, the gospel was witnessed to you and you rejected it, and you weren't judged. Instead, later, it was witnessed to you again. And maybe then again, and then maybe you saw, you saw the fruit of other people walking around and following Christ, and it, and it pricked your heart in you, and you wondered what was going on. But then you turned away, and you weren't judged. God is kind. God is patient. He's long-suffering with those who refuse to believe on him for years and years and even decades. There is, there's not judgment with regard to an eternal judgment until your final day, your final breath. And then one day, and then after, after death, we are told in Hebrews, after death comes the judgment. There's just one life. There's just one opportunity. But, there is this, but throughout life, 
And you should take this with you as, as you think about gathering with friends and family over the course of Christmases, over the course of fam family gatherings. People that you maybe have witnessed to that you've shared the gospel with before and you think, well, there's, there's no chance. No, God hasn't judged them yet. You shouldn't judge them yet. Jesus meant it. If you, if, if you see the light, if you believe in the light, it will, you'll, you'll walk out of the darkness. There, the offer remains. The offer remains. It's right there. And, and then he says in 49 and 50 that the reason for this is that he has spoken only what the Father has commanded. He has only followed exactly what the Father has commanded. And what has the Father commanded? The Father has commanded everlasting life. <laughs> How are we to make sense of all of this? Well, let's look at it, just the, the, the responses here that we see. There's, there's kind of three responses that are going on in the midst of this. None of them are, are really encouraging. We have confusion, we have unbelief, and we have hidden belief or fearful belief. Here's what John leaves us with at the end of Jesus' public ministry of three years. First of all, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What are you talking about? Lots of questions, lots of confusion. Or we have in, in uh, verse 37, um, they did not believe in him, just straight up. Even though he had seen many signs, it says, many signs, they did not believe in him. Doesn't matter how many signs they saw. Didn't matter how many proofs of the existence of God. Didn't matter how many great arguments for why Jesus is the Son of God. Didn't matter. They don't believe in him. And then there's those among the rulers in verses 42, 43. Among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. They didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Wow. That's the end of the public ministry of Jesus. The confused, let's take a look at the confused first of all again verse in, in uh, verse 34 there. Jesus had said, when I am lifted up, he says in, in uh, verse uh, 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself, signifying what death he would die. And the people answer, what do you mean? The, the, the law says that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. You're saying you're the son of man, you're the Messiah. You can't be lifted up from the earth. And there are some verses that speak of this, the Messiah remaining forever, his kingdom remaining forever. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Micah 4, 7, speak of the everlasting kingdom and the king remaining forever among his people on Mount Zion, it says. But Jesus knew that their questions were not out of seeking truth, but rather of just distracting themselves, distancing themselves from him. And many times unbelief does this. Many times unbelief is really not an issue of honest seeking, but rather of stifling the truth with smokescreen questions. I will not believe unless all my questions are answered, um, I, and I always will have more questions. Well, yes, you'll always have more questions. We're talking about an infinite God with an infinite plan, you little finite thing. Of course you're not going to understand it all. But the gospel is presented to you with enough, with, with enough light that you may believe, that you can come to faith. It's like the person who says to you, you know, says to you, know, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? I, I can't believe until I know all the contradictions in the Bible. One of the things you need to ask that person almost, almost without uh, exception to say, well, tell me one. I, well, I, I, I don't really know any. I just hear there's lots of contradictions in the Bible. Have you ever read it? Well, I read a little bit in a literature class once at an unbelieving university. 
Oh, I see. Is that where they told you about the contradictions? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Well, have you read, ever read the Bible carefully and honestly? Well, no, because I don't, I don't believe. Well, why don't you believe? Well, because of all the contradictions in the Bible. Sir, you are a contradiction. Right? You see, this is, you're, you're not interested in believing. You're interested in putting up as many defenses as possible so that you don't have to believe. That's what you are interested in doing. And the reason we want to do that has been told throughout the Gospel of John. It is because of darkness. We love darkness. We love our sin. We love our autonomy. We love being our own God. We even, we even love, in, in sort, of, sort of a pseudo-Christian religious way, to decide for ourselves who Jesus is, what his character is really like, what we're going to believe about him. Rather than submitting to the truth wherever it takes us, wherever the scriptures take us, rather than seeing light, walking away from the darkness, confessing our own sin, our own, um, our own excuses for not following God, and walking into that glorious light of forgiveness and everlasting truth. To reject the light in such a way is not just to return to the darkness, but to be plunged into even greater darkness. To walk away from the, the offer of light is, is, is to turn around and walk deeper into darkness. And this is, you see this in individuals, and you see this in societies and cultures. The light is there, or, or maybe for generations in a society and culture, there has been light. There, there has been... Uh, some aspect of Christendom. There has been some aspect of how we are to walk as Christians, how we are to love one another, how we are to act as a society. And then to reject that light, we find ourselves going into deeper and deeper darkness, deeper and deeper confusion, and deeper and deeper selfishness and hatred, and strife with one another and towards one another. To reject the light is to be plunged into greater darkness and that's, that's, that's what you're seeing going on here. They don't believe in him. They just question. They, they question uh, Jesus and, and, and as he's making these glorious declarations about what he's going to do. Or they believe, but they don't want anybody to know because they really love the acclamations of the world. And Jesus acts like, well, John, John actually says to us, this is exactly what was supposed to happen. Perfect. What? But, but that's exactly what it says. It says in verse 37, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. And then there's two quotations. Although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe him, which was exactly God's plan. Isaiah had foretold this confusion and unbelief. And, and there's two passages. I'm going to go to the second one first in verses 40, 40 and 41, um, which, which comes from Isaiah chapter 6. If you turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the glory of God 
and he described what that glory was. First four verses of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with his smoke. (laughs) And so he sees the glory of the Lord. Isaiah sees the glory of Yahweh. And he thought, he thought, for having seen it, that he would die. Verse 5. He says, so I said, woe is me, for I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he sees the glory of the Lord, and when he sees the Lord, he thinks he's undone. He thinks he's going to die. And then right then, an atonement is provided for him. Verse 6 and 7, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. So John, John records, John John points back that this, this, this is exactly what would happen, that the glory of the Lord would be displayed and then... And then, to Isaiah, a mission would be given, verses 8, verse 8 and following. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And, he, and, and then the Lord says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And, and John now quotes this to say, this is why they're not hearing. This is why they're not seeing. Now, there's, there's something else to notice here in, in uh, John chapter 12. You kind of have to flip back and forth. But in verse 41, it says, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus. Isaiah saw the Son of Man. John is telling us Isaiah saw the second person of the Trinity in all his glory. And, I, and then the second person of the Trinity gives this message to Isaiah the prophet that is going to be the same ministry that Jesus is going to have as well. And that is to preach the gospel to ears that will not hear, to eyes that will not see. And so Isaiah and Jesus are given the same ministry of speaking to hard hearts who will not see or hear what is being plainly done and spoken before him. That became the ministry of Isaiah, and that was the ministry of Jesus in this public ministry. That was his purpose. That's what it was about. But, but chapter 6, this experience of, of the glory, doesn't finish. Isaiah says in verse 11, Then I said, Lord, how long? How long is it going to be like this? And, I believe we can say Jesus answered, the second person answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And then verse, so there's going to become this great judgment upon upon Judah, upon Jerusalem. 
And that was just a picture of the final judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem and the temple following Jesus' ministry within a generation. And then there's this promise in verse 13, but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Well, the holy seed is the new Adam, the one who's going to bring forth the new Israel. And so there's going to be this great demolition of, uh, around, around the people and the, and the center of unbelief. And, and rebellion against God, Jerusalem and the old order is going to be brought down, and from that, a seed, a holy seed is going to rise up. And Jesus is that holy seed. So Jesus knows the destruction that is coming is, 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 is for a purpose of judgment upon uh, unbelieving Israel, but to bring forth the gospel to all the world. He also knows something else. He knows that, his, that, that, that in his generation, or at that, at that time, in this week, his rejection, the rejection of Christ, is going to bring forth the salvation of the world. It's going to accomplish exactly what, um, what God foreordained would take place. And so, the so that takes us to the previous quote, in, which is from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report? Who's going to believe this? Who, uh, and to who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, if you, take, if you turn with me to Isaiah 53 as well, I hope you can see this. And Isaiah 53 is the passage that we, are, we know as the, as the suffering servant, the description of the suffering servant. And so Isaiah's prophecy begins, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is no one. And why? Well, now he's going to describe why. Why no one would believe that this is the servant, this is the Messiah. Here he is, the Messiah for you. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But who would believe this report? Who would, who would follow Jesus that week from there to the cross where he would hang, beaten, humiliated, suffering. Who would follow this one nailed to a cross? It would make no sense. Even all of his disciples, except John, would flee. John is the only disciple that is recorded to be at the foot of the cross. So when Jesus is laying this out at the end of his public ministry, what he's making clear, again, is that what is happening is exactly what the prophets foretold, what exactly he and the Father had laid in place. His ministry was not a ministry um, that failed. It was accomplishing exactly what the Father wanted to see accomplished. So,
So consider this as well. When confronted plainly and convincingly of the truth, the darkened heart still refuses to acknowledge or believe because men love the darkness. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter if all of the verses point to Christ. It doesn't matter if, I, if you sit down with somebody and, and walk them through these passages. Unless God opens the dark heart, unless God opens the blind eyes, they don't want to see. They, they don't want to hear. And so they will continue to refuse to do so. The answer to who would want to believe on a Messiah who was rejected both by Israel and all the Gentiles, scourged, humiliated, and nailed to a cross is no one. No one. And yet Jesus just remains confident in this passage. He remains confident that exactly what was to happen is happening. He begins in verse 44, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. Sees the one and the plan that God had in mind. Listen to Acts chapter 2. This is when the Holy Spirit is poured out and eyes are opened by means of the Holy Spirit. Peter, who had denied Christ, Peter who fled and was not near um, Christ when he was in the cross, on the cross, Peter, who is then filled with the Holy Spirit, raises up as a leader among the twelve and declares, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. This was your doing. You did it um, of your own will, of your own desire. You rejected Christ. In fact, you, Gentiles and Jews, fully and freely chose to reject Christ and have him crucified. And when you did, you were following God's exact predetermined plan. You could not thwart him, but only accomplish exactly what he intended to accomplish. And you see here, you see here in this, in this passage with a declaration of God's, of God's prophecy in Isaiah and the full invitation of Christ to believe in the light and follow the light, you see the, 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 the full declaration of God's exhaustive sovereignty and man's free will, both at play and God having no trouble with either of them. Man has free will. Man has free will to follow his heart. The problem is, his heart is darkened. See, every, each and every one of us have, have free will. Jonathan Edwards, I think, explained this so well. We, we have the ability to reach into our heart and, and choose within our heart the thing that we desire most. We always will. The only person who does not reach into their heart and choose the thing they desire most is somebody who's insane. They're, they're, not, they're not following their desire. And, and people will say to me, I'll use this example, people will say to me, oh no, I, a lot of times I, I don't choose the thing I most want. Like I didn't choose chocolate cake for dessert last night because I, I didn't want that, the extra calories. But I, that's what I wanted the most. No, what you wanted the most was not the extra calories. That's why you ended up choosing the not extra calories over the chocolate cake. You chose what you wanted the most. We, we all do this. 
The thing is, when you reach into your heart with regard to eternal things, when you reach into your heart with, with regard to things that love God or things that would turn to God, you won't find anything in your heart there because that heart is dead. That heart is dead and separated from God, separated from love from, from or for God and, and separated from, from any desire to obey him or make him allow him to be Lord of your life. And so you reach into your heart and you freely choose whatever you desire. And what you desire is to hate God. What you desire is to not follow God. What you desire is, is to put a whole bunch of religious rituals all around you that protect you from what you know is the judgment of God that is coming. What you do is you, you reach down your heart and you choose the pleasure of your sin, the pleasure of your selfishness, the pleasure of your self-autonomy, and you do so all according to the absolute complete foreknowledge of God who has determined beforehand all things and has not lost control of anything or anyone. This is why Jesus is so confident at, in, in the very moment. So this heart that is darkened will not turn to the light because he does not freely desire to do so. And God predetermined to use this darkened will in, in the day and age, in, in the week that Jesus, that we're, we're with Jesus here, to put the Lord of glory to death and bring salvation to the world. This is all foolishness and confusion to the natural man. Cannot understand it. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 2, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can we know them because they are spiritually discerned. But this has tremendous Tremendous application for our hearts and our souls and the time in which we live, if we'll think about it. We, we don't realize, we don't believe, and I, and I think in, in, the, in the Christian church today, we, we don't teach enough how fallen the human race is, how, how fallen we are as a people. J.C. Ryle in the 19th century wrote these words. He said, the prevalence of unbelief and indifference in the present day, this is the 19th century, ought not to surprise us. It is just one of the evidences of that mighty foundation doctrine, the total corruption and fall of man. How feebly we grasp and realize that doctrine is proved by our surprise at human incredulity. We only half believe the heart's deceitfulness. Let us read our Bibles more attentively and search their contents more carefully. Even when Christ wrought miracles and preached sermons, there were numbers of his hearers who remained utterly unmoved. What right have we to wonder if the hearers of modern sermons in countless instances remain unbelieving? The disciple is not greater than his master. Even if the hearers of Christ did not believe, how much more should we expect to find unbelief among the hearers of his ministers? Let the truth be spoken and confessed. Man's obstinate unbelief is one among many of the indirect proofs that the Bible is true. Prove to me that the Bible is true. You don't believe in God, do you? No. There it is. Bible's true. It's exactly what it teaches. It teaches you don't believe in, the, in God, that you would, if you, if you even did, you hate him. A lot of times you, the two things are both true. And and, and you, will not, 
you will not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like the Bible says. That's how I know the Bible's true. You are evidence that the Bible is true. But we don't want to believe that. There's nothing to reconcile between the doctrine, though, of man's free will and God's exhaustive sovereignty when God is infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. There's nothing that has to be reconciled. The, the problem is we're not infinite, we're not omniscient, we're not omnipresent, and we're not omnipotent, so it doesn't make sense. We can't, we can't do the math. Well, it's, it's as though God has given us, we have the problem, and God gives you the answer, and, and we're saying, no, how did you get to that answer? And he says, never mind, you, you would never be able to follow me. <laughs> you just have to trust me. This is the answer. Here's the problem. Man's free will. God is exhaustive sovereignty. The answer is, it all works out. How? God says, you're just going to have to trust me. Is he worth trusting? And that's why Jesus would say in these verses, he would say, and if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. <laughs> There's no way. His, his heart's darkened. His eyes are blind. His ears are, are stopped. Why should I judge him? <laughs> we'll come back again. We'll bring the gospel again. We'll wait for the Spirit's work to do its work. I'll go to the cross and die for these people. And that will bring forth a new world, a new humanity. A holy seed will come forth, and a new people will be brought forth. So, so there is nothing to reconcile God's these doctrines, if God is infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, and he is all these things, but he is also love. He is also light. He is also life. He is also the way of salvation. Now, those things people are looking for, love, light, understanding, freedom, those things God is also. And oftentimes, those are the things that prick their interest, that give us the opportunity to, to, to describe, defend, and put forth who God is. But, that, but it will always mean that he, is fully, that he is beyond our full ability to comprehend him completely in his ways. We, you, you won't be able to answer all of their questions. You can't answer all of your own. Paul, the end of Romans chapter 11, describing this activity of God's exhaustive sovereignty over the work of, of Jews and Gentiles over time, says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So Jesus is going to be lifted up, and he's going to be lifted up to a cross because they didn't believe, because they rejected him. This perspective of Jesus being lifted up is so different than we expect. When Jesus is getting on a cross, he declares he is getting on his throne. He's being lifted up to draw all men to himself. He is glorified while being humiliated. We see a man born blind, and Jesus sees the glory of God. We see Lazarus dead and cold in the tomb, and people mourning all around, and Jesus sees the glory of God. We see the Son of Man lifted up on a cross, and God sees the glory of His Son. What are we to make of this? This should in inform our interpretation of the events of our lives and our generations. What do we see? Do we see suffering and hardship? 
Do we see confusion and darkness? Do we see rebellion? What does God see? Is it a great setup for more glory? Well, that's, that's what seems to happen over and over and over again here in the Gospels. Suffering, hardship, blindness, and then glory. For us, the, the, the problem, what makes it so hard for us to grasp this or, or believe it or hang on to it, walk this way in our lives, is, is because our ultimate goal seems to be to remove all suffering and hardship. Like if I could just... If, if there's just be no more suffering, no more hardship, no more difficulties in the world, if it was just, you know, cotton candy and rainbows and unicorns and just sitting there, wouldn't it be sweet? That, just, that would be wonderful, right? No more suffering and hardship. And, and there is the promise that one day, one day in eternity, all tears are going to be wiped away. All sorrow is going to be gone. There is an end to that. But, but that's not the ultimate goal we saw this last week. The ultimate goal is the glory of God. Okay. So the suffering and the hardship is, has a, has a, is a means to a particular end. We just want the hardship and the suffering to go away. God wants to reveal his glory. The re, the regu, and this ties in. What's the regular argument against the existence of God? Well, if, if, if God is good and all-powerful, why is there so much evil in the world, right? If God is good all-powerful, then how come there's so much suffering? How, much, how come there's so much evil in the world? But, but first, Jesus sees sin and suffering as a stage, the stage by which God's glory is going to be demonstrated, a glory which is infinite and eternal. And second, the reason there remains so much evil and suffering upon individuals and nations is because so many have still not come to the light. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They love the darkness, and that darkness brings forth consequences, wrath, suffering, hardships, strife, relationships, teared apart, improper view of the world as, as only a material world, and then with all the wrong assumptions trying to deal with the world around us and the results of the fall. But, but Jesus says, look, he who believes in me belie believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. I have the way out of darkness. And, and when the world, and, and you see this, if you, if you think for a minute again, uh, times are like, times where there's been the, uh, great reformations in societies, in cultures. And then those cultures and societies have brought about all kinds of freedom prosperity and opportunity for men and women and children, slaves set free. You have, you have all kinds of glorious things that take place when a society, when a people begin to walk in the light. You take a, a marriage that's a, just an absolute disaster marriage and, and have t both those people get on their knees, confess their sins, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and watch what happens. Watch, watch the reconciliation that happens. You take families that are full of bitterness and strife and it's gone on for generations and generations and you bring light into it and accept the light and what begins to happen? How does the culture and the family change? Especially how does it change over generations? I hope many of you, many of you might feel, feel as though you're like first generation Christians. You have the opportunity to completely turn around from the darkness of, of the past, of the past generations of your home because now you're going to walk in the light. 
Why is there so much darkness and suffering in the world? Because people won't walk in the light. Because you won't walk in the light. Because you won't believe in the light. Believe in the light and watch the world grow from that holy seed into something more and more and more glorious to the praise of the glory of God. So, first of all, he sees it as a stage. Suffering is a stage to reveal his glory. And second, the reason is that the suffering remains because we continue to just simply walk in darkness. How is the spell going to get broken? In this world of unbelief and hardened hearts, where is this then all going? And this is where we have to note again Christ's confidence. Christ's confidence. Listen again to verse 49 and 50 at the end of this passage. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. I have no need, Jesus says, to change the Father's message because the Father's message is glorious. It is everlasting life. Jesus spoke the words the Father commanded. He did the signs his Father put in front of him to do. And then John writes this gospel. And then Paul wrote many of the passages recited above on the sovereignty of God and the hardening of unbelieving hearts. And then Peter preached that sermon at Pentecost. And yet all of them found this to be a message of hope for salvation, not of doom. Not of, well, well God's determined everything that's going to happen from the beginning to the end, so it doesn't matter what we do. No, these guys went out and preached the gospel even to, the, to, to losing their lives for the sake of it. They knew the efficacious work of the word going forth, of the gospel going forth, of the gospel being written, of the Bible being read. They knew the efficacious work that would take place, even as they spoke of the hardness of man's hearts. Both were true. Gospel is a play off an old English word, good spell, and describes what happens by means of the, of the proclaimed word, of the preached word. Peter would write about this in 2 Peter. He says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light, there he is again, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This word of God, this word of God, preached, spoken, read by the power of the Holy Spirit is the work of the word of the Lord, of the word of Christ in hearts. Morning star rises in hearts that are dead. Hearts that are dead come to life. Eyes that are blind are opened. Ears that are deaf are unstopped because of the word of God preached, shared, read, studied, prayed over by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on. And for all believers, all who walk in the light, there is glory preserved for you in the resurrection that is a, that is a glory that is being worked out from the, from the hardships, from the sufferings that are going on. You will not miss out on the glory of your hardship any more than the blind man missed out on the glory of, his, of, of, his, of sight being brought to him after years and years of being blind and then becoming a follower of Jesus and, and experiencing everlasting life. Your glory is still to come as well. All of our glory is, 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 is to come as well because Jesus Christ died on that cross, and that's the glory. We see the glory. What's the glory that you see? You see a man stripped naked, 
You see a man scourged. You see a man nailed to a cross. You see blood dripping down him. You see, you see his, his side pierced, water and blood flowing out, and that's glory. Because all your sins are forgiven. And there's no way you can stop or rebel against his work of bringing salvation to all the world, starting with your heart, if he so chooses. You can't stop him. Because that's what Jesus Christ came to do. And in a day when he saw at the end of three years of ministry, a bunch of guys walk away saying, you can't answer our questions. And a bunch of other guys walking away saying, we're not going to believe in you. And others say, well, we're not going to tell anybody we believe in you because it's not really worth that much. Jesus would say, I, have the most, I am most confident that the words that my father gave me to speak, the signs that my father gave me to do, we're done in such a way that salvation is coming to the whole world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, your ways are higher than ours, far past finding out.